Let's take out our Bibles and open God's Word to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, we're going to read the first 20 verses of the chapter. Our text is the first part of verse 2. John 19, beginning at verse 1. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him with their hands. Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that ye may know that I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. When the chief priests, therefore, and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid, and went again into the judgment hall, and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee, and have power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath a greater sin. And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, He brought Jesus forth and sat him down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover in about the sixth hour. And he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he him, therefore, unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him, and two other with him on the either side one, and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. We read the Word of God to that point tonight. Our text is the first part of verse 2, John 19, the first part of verse 2. And the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns, 
and put it on his head. Beloved of God, Thursday night, the night before Good Friday, the Lord Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane at the base of the Mount of Olives to pray, to prepare himself for what he knows has been his lot from the moment he came into the world. As he is praying to his Father and under the cover of darkness, Judas, with a band of soldiers from the Sanhedrin, come into the garden to arrest Jesus. Jesus gives himself up willingly, showing that he has power over them, making all the soldiers fall down, but then giving himself unto them. They take him, and in the middle of the night, they bring him to the house of the high priest inside the city walls of Jerusalem to be tried. It's illegal, according to the Jews' own laws, to try anyone at night. And yet they try him. They find him guilty in the middle of the night of the sin of blasphemy for claiming to be the Son of God. Blasphemy requires the death penalty. However, they cannot kill him. The Romans are in charge of Palestine, and the Romans had a law that the Jews were not allowed to execute anyone unless they gave approval of it first. So early in the morning, as Friday is dawning upon Palestine, the leaders of the Jews take Jesus a few blocks to the palace where Pilate is staying. And they demand of Pilate that he try the Lord Jesus. They tell him, we found him guilty of blasphemy and he must die, but you must sign off on it. And Pilate tries the Lord and finds no fault in him. He's a bit delusional, perhaps, but he has no criminal worthy of death. And so Pilate tries a number of times to release Jesus. But the Jews won't let him. And finally, the rulers of the Jews come up with an argument that persuades Pilate to offer him up to death. Verse 12 of John 19, And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. That hit Pilate right between the eyes as the Jews knew him knew that it would. Pilate was already in some trouble with Caesar. And if Caesar would find out that there was someone under Pilate's jurisdiction who claimed to be a king, a rival to Caesar himself, and Pilate did nothing about it, Caesar would have Pilate's head. So though Pilate doesn't see this Jesus as any threat to Caesar, As just a a weak and delusional man, to save his own skin, he offers up Jesus to the cross. Backing up just a little bit, in that whole process, as Pilate is trying to release Jesus, he tries having him beaten 
to convince the Jews that, look, whatever you think he's done, I've beaten him to a bloody pulp for it. Isn't that enough for you? And just let him go. So he scourged him, verse 1 says. He's going to be scourged again right before he's crucified. There's two floggings or scourgings of Jesus. This is the first one. He scourges him at this time thinking that he can let him go. They will be satisfied with this. As he turns him over to be flogged by these soldiers, these soldiers do more than just beat the Lord. They start to mock him. They put a fake crown, a crown of thorns upon his head. They put a mock robe upon his shoulders. And they make sport with the Son of God made flesh. And in even their sport, we are to see tonight a revelation from God, a word from God to us. The passion narratives throughout the four Gospels are detailed. Every detail is given to us. And the reason for that is because every detail matters. God and his sovereignty is overruling, as he always does, every aspect of this. But every aspect of this passion narrative is purposeful to reveal something to the church of why Jesus is being crucified. Even this. So that we can have a sermon tonight on just a few words. They plated a crown of thorns and put it upon his head. Gaze with me this evening upon the king, mockingly crowned with thorns. And by the grace of God, let's see tonight something very different from what those soldiers saw, from what Pilate saw, and what the Jews saw. Let's see. And that too our only hope. The king with thorns for a crown. We'll notice first tonight, bearing our curse. Second, a king for a savior. And third, let's behold the man. Where did these thin, stringy branches with thorns on them that could be weaved together in a circle come from. Palestine had all kinds of shrubs, bushes, and trees that produced thorny, stringy branches. So they could have come from any number of places. More than likely, though, it was from one of two sources. One is the acanthus bush. This was a shrub that grew all over Palestine that had just that very thin, stringy kind of branches that were covered with thorns that could be twisted and molded. Another possibility is the thorns that grew at the base of the date palm tree. Palestine was also filled with date palm trees. And at the base of date palm trees grew these little branches and they had thorns on them. In fact, massive thorns. Thorns that were somewhere between 6 and 12 inches long. And those branches too, stringy branches at the base of the date palm tree could be bent and weaved together. One of those two 
is likely the source. But whatever tree or shrub from which these thorny branches came from, the ultimate answer to the question, where did these thorns come from, is not that, is it? The ultimate answer to that question is that they came from the fall of man into sin. The reason why there are even thorns in Palestine at all, and the reason why there are even thorns anywhere and everywhere in all the world at all, is because of the curse of God upon this world due to sin. Thorns are part of the curse of the fall. Just as you and I can trace our lineage back to Adam who fell, the thorns that were upon the Lord's head could trace their own lineage back to the fall and the curse that came upon that fall. Genesis 3, 17 and 18, Because thou hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. God made thorns to come into the world as a consequence of sin. God took away from Adam and from Eve the paradise that was thorn-free, that was lush and full, and he kicked him out of that and put them in a place that was like a wilderness with thorns and thistles. The curse is encapsulated in this image of thorns, and that holds all throughout the scriptures, that thorns and a wilderness that produces thorns are an image of the curse and the fall into sin. For example, in the prophecy of Isaiah, the prophet uses these images and makes an interplay of these images of a paradise that's lush and green and full of life and no thorns is a picture of life in God's covenant and the freedom from sin and from its consequences ultimately over against this image of wilderness and overgrowth and of dryness and of thorns and of piercing and of death to picture the fall and sin and the consequences of sin. When God speaks to Israel through the prophet Isaiah, his redeemed bride, he calls her often his garden, his vineyard, his kind of paradise that he is cultivating and causing to grow lush and beautiful, that he's freeing of thorns as he's caring for her. And yet when he speaks of her sin and of the consequences of those sins upon her in an organic way, upon Israel, institutionally upon Israel. He warns her about this, that he's going to stop cultivating her so that she's going to become overrun with thorns and thistles as a picture of the fact that the consequences of sin are going to come upon her. Isaiah 5, 5 and 6. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. 
I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Isaiah 7, 23 and 24. And it shall come to pass in that day that every place shall be where there were a thousand vines and a thousand silverlings. It shall even be for briars and thorns. With arrows and with bows shall men come thither because all the land shall become briars and thorns. So that ultimately then, you have these two pictures. The picture of paradise, free from thorns and lush. as a picture of life with God, freedom from sin and its effects. And this picture of wilderness and thorns is a picture of God's curse for sin, all his punishing wrath for sin and the consequences of sin in this life and in the next. And though these soldiers have no idea about any of this, what any of this means, they're being used of God in his providence in this text. For God to bring a revelation, a word to those who have eyes to see of what the Lord Christ is willingly giving himself to do upon this cross on Good Friday. He goes to this cross to bear the curse of sin for his people. The thorns of the curse are put upon his head. Verse 2, a symbol that God is laying upon his son as the representative head of his people. The thorns are put on his head. He is the head of his church. God is placing upon him our representative. All the curse for sin that is due to us. Do you remember the day of atonement in the Old Testament? And how the high priest was to get a goat and he was to lay his hands on the head of that goat. And Leviticus 16 says that he was to confess the sins of Israel upon the head of that goat. A legal transfer of the sin of Israel to the head of that goat. And then that goat representing Israel, bearing the sin of Israel as its representative, legally guilty with the sin of Israel, was not to be killed but it was to be taken by the hand of a ready runner, Leviticus 16 says, out into the wilderness of thorns and thistles. That's a picture of the fact that bearing our guilt, it must go to the place where sin is cursed. It must bear the curse for the sin that is upon it, the wilderness of thorns. God is telling us here in this image in John chapter 19, verse 2. This is what He's doing upon His Son. As it were, He's laying His hands upon the head of His Son and He's transferring all of our sins upon His head so that He's legally guilty with your sin and with my sin. And because guilty with your sin and my sin, also then He bears the curse for your sin and my sin. That's what we must see in this crown of thorns upon his head. He is our head bearing the curse for us, for our sin is upon him. And he will be the curse bearer who takes our sin and curse away. Don't you see it? 
and the crown of thorns put upon his head. By this, the Lord Jesus will turn this wilderness life full of the thorns of curse into a garden paradise. The vineyard of God. And the prophet Isaiah spoke of this too. In his messianic prophecies, he carried this image forward. Isaiah 35 verse 6, In the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. Isaiah 51 verse 3, For the Lord shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places and He will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. By the work of this Christ on the cross, bearing our curse upon Himself as our head, He turns our wilderness life full of the thorns of sin and of the consequences of sin into lush garden life already now spiritually. He places into the hearts of His people by the work of regeneration. Garden life. Life that is free from thorn and sin. The very life of Jesus Christ Himself. He begins to pluck the thorns out of our life as He grows us after the image of of Jesus Christ. He causes streams to come into this desert life so that we live in the joy of the Lord and the hope of God. He places in the midst of this wilderness world, this thorny world full of sin and its consequences, His church. And He cultivates this church like a garden of the Lord in the midst of this wilderness. Now in part, and then fully in the day that is to come when He makes all things new in the new heavens and new earth and He removes all thorn and all wilderness and all consequences of sin. He takes the thorns of sin out of all of us and out of all of His creation and makes all things new. We are meant to see the whole work of redemption in that little phrase, they plaited a crown of thorns and placed it upon his head. And we are meant to see that the Lord Jesus Christ accomplishes all of that redemption for us as a king, as our king. These thorns are not placed upon his head like a straight branch pressed upon him, but they are plaited. They are weaved into a circle in the shape of a Roman crown and placed upon his head. Caesar And many of his rulers, including Pontius Pilate himself, wore a crown that was a wreath of laurels. Laurels is greenery. Green, thin, stringy branches with green leaves on it that were weaved 
into a circle and put upon the head. And these soldiers, to mock the Lord, put not upon him a wreath of laurels, but put upon him this wreath of thorns. Roman soldiers were known in their floggings and scourgings to also attempt to psychologically destroy the people that they were scourging and flogging. To mock them, to scorn, to ruin them mentally. And that's what they're trying to do here with the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're fitting their mockery to the claims that they know Jesus has made about himself. They know, these soldiers, as well as everybody else in Jerusalem, that Jesus had rode into the city on a donkey earlier in the week, claiming to be a king. It's only someone who claims to be a king who rides into the city in this way. And they heard all of the shouts of all of the people saying, Hosanna to the king of David. They knew that he claimed to be the son of God. They understood why the Jews were bringing him to Pilate, that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. They understood (coughs) why Pilate finally gave him up because he claimed to be a king, a rival to Caesar himself in their minds. So they mock him. And they scorn him and they try to destroy him in accord with his claims. Caesar claimed to be the king of all the earth. And so this man thinks he can rival Caesar. They take a crown of of thorns and place it upon his head. They take a, a reddish purple robe of one of the soldiers and they put it around his shoulders as though... He's a king. They take, another gospel account tells us, a reed that they find and they put it into his hand. And then they take it out of his hand and then they whack him on the head with it to push those thorns deeper into his skull. And finally, they even go so far as to bow down to him, mocking him. Hail, king of the Jews. This is what everybody did, of course, to Caesar. Hail, Caesar, king of the world. Hail, King of the Jews! Who do you think you are? You're nothing. You think you're son of God? Caesar is son of God. That was one of Caesar's names. Son of God. Augustus. Caesar. Son of God. Where is your throne? Where is your army? Where is your power? Where is your crown? Where is your might? Where is your splendor. Where's your scepter? You're nothing. You're a pathetic little man. You're weak. We beat you. We spit upon you. We mock you, and you do nothing. You just stand there and take it, because you have no power with which to fight us. We must see, beloved, all the world's mockery and the mockery of those soldiers, which mockery becomes increasingly bold and shameless, and out in the open in our day and age. This is what the world thinks of him. 
delusional man. Thoughts of splendor that he claimed to be the son of God, but he's nothing. Maybe he had some good things to say, some good teachings, but he's nothing as the world heaps upon him the scorn of these soldiers. Hail, king of the Jews. Ha! And the reality is a king indeed he is. A greater king than Caesar. And he is the son of God and Caesar a mere man. And though Caesar sits in his palace with all of his riches, with all of his armies, and with a vast empire that covers the known world, Caesar himself, and all of that is held in the hands of this one who is being beaten and mocked. And he would only have to speak, he would only have to close his fist, as it were, and crush them all with the power of God himself that is his. But he says nothing. And he does nothing He does not use his power. He takes it. Silently, he takes it. For though he appears helpless and weak, though he subjects himself to the will of the world upon himself, you must understand, he is doing as king precisely what he came to do. He was born into this world to be crowned with this crown and no other crown. It must have been so anticlimactic to the Jews who had gathered for Passover into the city of Jerusalem when Jesus rode into the city, publicly showing himself a king. They all gathered around him thinking, now is the moment finally that he's going to rise up and take the throne. We've been wanting him to do this for three years. And he kept refusing. This miracle worker who could easily throw off the Roman Empire that has control over us by his miracles, his power, and his might. Why doesn't he do it? And now he was just waiting for the right time. Of course, on Passover, he's going to do it. And now here it is. Hosanna, King of David. Get in there and show Pilate who you are. And then he doesn't. He doesn't ride into Pilate's palace and get by the guards with some miracle. He doesn't take a sword or a knife and plunge it into Pilate's heart, take off Pilate's wreath of laurels and place it upon his own head and say, now will be restored to Israel the glory of the Davidic years, the empire of Israel will return. He doesn't. He doesn't fight Pilate for the throne. beloved that wasn't the crown he entered the city to take that wasn't the throne he entered the city to take but this crown a crown of thorns 
and this throne, the throne of his cross, that he will mount to bear the sins of many. As king, he establishes a very different kind of kingdom. He enters into that kingdom as king a totally different way by laying his life under the curse that is due to you and to me and all those whom he represents. This is his purpose. Don't you see then? In his self-confidence and in his self-restraint, in his silence, in his doing nothing as they beat him and mock him and make him into a bloody pulp. The marvels of the mystery of the gospel. How could he bear this? He's the son of God made flesh. He lets them do this to him. Mock him, laugh him to scorn in front of all the world, and this will be written of him forever and ever. He bears it because he knows that by wearing this crown of thorns, he is plucking the thorns out of the lives of his people until all that's left is the roses of the garden of God. Behold your king, beloved. The soldiers took the Lord after his scourging back to Pilate, still wearing the crown of thorns, still wearing the mock kingly robe. And Pilate, instead of taking that robe off of him, and instead of taking that mock crown off of him and cleaning him up, Pilate sees an opportunity. And he seizes it. And he leads him out to the public and sets him on the front porch of his palace, his portico. Something like this stage, although much larger, much more innate. And before him are all the leaders of the Jews. And by this time, crowds of Jews are gathering too. They've woken up Friday morning. They are hearing about what's going on. And they're gathering around. And Pilate takes the Lord Jesus out and sets him in front of all these people. And says, Behold, your king. Behold the man in verse 5, and behold the king in verse 14. Every time a new Caesar would be crowned in Rome, this is the kind of thing that would happen. There would be what's called a reveal as the new Caesar would be brought out and presented to all the people with his crown of laurel wreath upon his head and his kingly robes, and all the people would shout, Hail Caesar! Hail Caesar! 
And Pilate, seeing the mockery of the soldiers, thinks, I'm going to play this part and I'm going to keep this going. I'll show these Jews that this man is nothing. And he brings him out this way and keeps these mocked pieces of array upon him. Verses 4 and 5. Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that ye may know that I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Can you imagine? What a pitiable sight, as though he's being presented to the whole world. This bloodied form in mock array. Pilate thinks him a joke. A deluded character, but not worthy of death. And he brings him out as if to say, he's pathetic, people. He's not saying, behold the man and behold the king because he thinks they're going to bow down to him. But he's saying, look, you think he's a threat to you? You think he's a threat to Caesar? Look what my men have done to him. He's nothing. Look at his mock crown. Look at his his mock robe. He's weak. He's He's a nobody. And he's expecting that the people will say, eh, all right, and just walk away. But in their rage, they cry out, many of whom a few days earlier had said, Hosanna, King of the Jews, they cry out, crucify him. Away with him. Crucify him. I want nothing to do with this man. And you? And me? What do you say of him tonight? As in the preaching of the word, It's as though he is being represented to you. What do you say? Behold this man. And no one can keep silence. You must answer. God himself through the text presents him to you in all of his bloodied visage. Mocked and scorned. This crown of thorns pressed upon his head. Who is he? Who is he to you? Will you not fall down? Cry out. All hail King Jesus. That's my Lord. That's my Savior. I see no weakness. I see astounding might. I see no folly. I see wisdom. I see hope. I see love. I see my curse 
curse that was due to me upon his holy head. I see his blood running down his blessed face. As he bears that curse unto the shedding of his blood for me. I see my Savior. And though all the world would mock him, and though all the world would reject him, I kiss his feet and worship him. And I look forward to the day when I can cast my crown at his feet. For the Father will not leave him like this, but will exalt him for his work to the highest position and will show who he really is, the King and Lord of all. Pilate, soldiers, Jews, the world, Jehovah my God, what do I see in the king with crowns, thorns for a crown? I see the only hope for me, poor sinner. Come then, beloved. And receive of his benefits. And be united to him. And worship him. Your king. Amen. Father in heaven, bless thy word to our hearing. And bless us as we partake of his holy supper. For union with him. In whom is all our hope. Amen.